Well, good morning. Good to see you. My name is Eldon, and I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Central. And it's my privilege to uh, give oversight to our Agassiz campus, so I bring you greetings from uh, there as well. Now, if you were at one of our campuses way back in the month of May, if you can remember that far back, you will remember that uh, Pastor Jason, who was just up here, he, he filled in a little one-week gap and introduced at that time a mini-series that we're now uh, coming back to, we're going to end the summer with after finishing the Ten Commandments. And at that time, Pastor Jason preached his favorite psalm, which was Psalm... Does anybody remember? Uh, it was a long time ago. Oh, close. Psalm 117. And uh, my favorite psalm, as you have seen on the screen, is Psalm 90. So let's go to Psalm 90. Turn in your Bible there, and we're going to read that and uh, get into it. Psalm 90 says this. It's a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust, and we say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday, when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength eighty, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our, hand, our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The reading of God's word. I want to share with you a harrowing experience that I once had, literally. I am a, uh, I'm the youngest of a family of six, four siblings. I'm the baby of the family. And so I remember one time on the farm where I grew up in, in Saskatchewan that uh, everybody was gone. My, my oldest sister, my twin brothers, my mom, everybody was gone except for me and my dad. And my dad had planned that day to do some field work. And I think it was in, if I remember correctly, I was very young. I was like maybe 12 years old. Uh, he, he was cultivating, I think, in preparation for seeding, uh, or maybe he was seeding, but I needed to come in behind. He needed someone to come in behind to harrow. And I'm the only guy around, so he said, Eldon, you're it. Let's go do this thing. So I'm like, I, at this point, I start to shake, and I'm trembling, and I'm like, I can't do this. Like, I've... I've driven this tractor with him, but never by myself, never pulling equipment. 
So we go out to the field with a harrow, and it's really quite long, wide. And he parks it in the corner of the field, uh, angled towards the other corner. And he said, Olin, what we're going to do is we're going to, you know, we're going to pull one swath, one path across the field, kitty corner to the other side. You ready for this? I'm like, okay, here we go. So he helped me get started in the right gear, the right, uh, the right RPMs, and away we go. And so he said, okay, like, just drive it to the other side. All right. So he helped a little bit here and there. And we get to the other side. When we get near the other corner, he took the wheel to turn the tractor around because knowing that I would for sure hook the fence and then there would be a delay in our day. So I turned it around, stopped the tractor, and he said, okay, now just look the other way before we make a path back. What do you think, what do you think we saw? <laughs> yeah, it was not good. We... Uh, now, I don't, know, I don't know where I get it from, but my dad is a little bit like OCD and uh, perfectionistic, to, to say the least, and he's like, Eldon, this will never do. Um, number one, we have neighbors, and they're going to laugh at us. Number two, <laughs> it's much easier to, uh, to harrow when you've made a, a, a straight line, and then the second time, you just keep, you keep following that, right? And so he said, okay, we're going to do it again. Now what I want you to do is look to the other side of the field, kitty corner, and you see beyond that, there's like a tree. So I want you just to remember that tree and focus on that, but what I want you to do is line up that tree with the ornament on the hood of the tractor, because they're, they're there for a reason, <laughs> and, then, and then with your eyes. So line up your eyes with that hood ornament and that tree, because the tree doesn't move. And you just keep doing that. Keep your head up and just occasionally check those three, and you'll be all right. So we made our return uh, swath back to the other side, and this time I turned it around, but he helped me to make sure we had the right distance there. And then we stopped, and he said, look again. And so what do you, what do you think we saw? Perfection. Perfection. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> it was straighter. <laughs> Not bad. And he said, okay, you're on your own. <laughs> Psalm 90 uh, is to all of life and to me what my experience was on the field that day. Psalm 90 helps us to lift up our head to see the big picture so that we can gain perspective. Psalm 90 helps us to focus our, our eyes, our gaze on that which does not move, on the one that does not move, the one who doesn't change, the one who is the same yesterday, today, forever. So that um, our path can be made straight, so that it brings into focus uh, uh, everything around us and determines everything that we do, and hopefully life will be a lot straighter and smoother from that point. Because you see, this life has a way of shaking our confidence, doesn't it? We have harrowing experiences. There's, you know, the psalm talks about the, the short span of our life being 70, 80 years, if God so wills. And in that time, the psalm has said our lives are full of toil and trouble. We feel like a kid left alone on a tractor, a little overwhelmed. Things can go crooked, maybe even sideways. We can wander, we can get off track, we can mess things up pretty quick. And so we need this perspective that Psalm 90 gives us. 
Perspective means a point of view. It's, it's how we see things. And so a Christian perspective would therefore mean seeing things not from our perspective, but from God's. So we need to see things through the eyes of God, through the eyes of Christ, and there's no better place than the word of God to do that because this is his word to us. The Apostle Paul said, on this side of heaven, we see things really dimly. They're not as they really should be. And so we need to go to the word of God so that in this life, we can have more clarity and more perspective than we would have otherwise. Psalm 90 is uh, uh, broken into two parts very distinctively. The first section is verses 1 through 11, and the next section, 12 through 17. Now, the first 11 verses describe uh, back and forth. It's kind of layered together, but we're going to separate them this morning. They describe, first of all, who God is, and secondly, who we are in light of who God is. We can only gain perspective on our lives get the big picture of our circumstances, our life, by evaluating both, but primarily getting a proper vision of who God is because God is the one person in the entire picture that doesn't change. Immovable, trustworthy, faithful, the same all the time. What he says he will do, who he is is who he is, and that does not change. So a proper perspective begins with God always and, and, and we see ourselves in light of who he is. That's the first section. So five things about who God is, four things about who we are, and the last six verses I'm going to talk about five things, five responses in light of all of that. So in order to not go off course, we need to begin with God. Do you know... Um, how this psalm begins, let's go back again. If you didn't notice it, the psalm begins this way, for a reason, Lord. Lord, you, the first two words, Lord, you. We need a bigger view than the limited view that we normally have. We need a God view. Again, back to my growing up years, I was 14 years old and um, I'm learning, learning, how to drive. Got my learner's license at age 15, my full license at age 16, and so uh, at age 14, the government would send people um, to the small towns in Saskatchewan to teach you how to drive. So they would bring, they would tow in behind a trailer that had a, uh, uh, what do you call that thing, a um, simulator, right? A driving simulator. So they would teach you in the classroom all the theory of driving, then you would get into the simulator and practice it on something that you can't crash, but we would always crash them anyway. Instructor didn't like that. We'd do it on purpose. And then, <laughs> and then you get into the car, the actual vehicle. And so with the way they did it in, in, in when I was growing up was they had the driver instructor with three students. So they would pick three and you'd go out for half the day. One student would drive from... Uh, from town into Saskatoon, into the city, on the highway. Another student, then you'd switch in, inside the city, and then another student would drive around in town, in the city a little bit, and then the third student would drive back. And in the course of your training, you did that three times so that you could get experience kind of doing it all. So I remember the first time I went out, there was the instructor, and he chose um, 
the only uh, girl in our group to start first. And, uh, and so this little 14-year-old girl gets into the driver's seat beside him, and I'm sitting directly behind her, and then there's another guy beside me. And I've never been so scared in my life. <laughs> so we're driving through our little town to the main highway, and now at this point I'm going to Hague High School, which is right on the highway between Prince Albert and Saskatoon. It's quite a busy highway, actually. And so you have to turn on and, and then merge into traffic. And so without knowing it, this girl is like around the corner and we're getting going and the driver instructor is like, okay, pick up your speed. We got to get moving here. Put on your signal. And then now before you get into traffic, you have to shoulder check. And I'm not kidding you. I'm not making this up. She turned and she looked at her shoulder. <laughs> and I'm looking behind me going, oh Lord, help us not to get hit by a truck. <laughs> Oh, scariest moment of my life. <laughs> Good learning uh, moment, though, for her. Instructor says, okay, next time, <laughs> when you shoulder check, what you do first is you scan everything. You look at the right mirror, you look in your rear mirror, you look in this mirror, and then you look behind, over your shoulder to see what's coming behind. And, and that's what Psalm 90 does for us. It gives us the big picture because we don't know what's coming up behind and we certainly don't know what's coming ahead. We, we live in the moment and we don't have that big view, but God does. And, 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 so, and so we need to be looking to God. That's why Psalm 90 says, Lord, you. And that's where we start with God, the one who has the big picture. Who is God? First thing, we'll talk about five real quick. God is our dwelling place. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. God is not just one option of, of many. He is not just a dwelling place. He is he's our dwelling place. He's not an impersonal force that can somehow be con confined and contained. He's a personal being who desires relationship with his people that he formed and created. He knows us inside and out. He knows what's best. He knows the future. He knows all things. He makes covenants with his people. He loves us. He has mercy and compassion. And when we come to God through faith and begin this real relationship with him through Christ, I'm going to talk more about that, the reality is that God says now he dwells with us through faith in our hearts. God is our dwelling place. And we need to spend more time thinking about God's dwelling place, not, not just while we're here and God dwelling in us, the temple of God, our bodies, where he dwell, resides by his Holy Spirit. But one day he tells us we're going to dwell with him face to face in eternity, in this place called heaven that we can only imagine. And we read about in scripture, but we won't know his glorious majesty until that time. And this psalm tells us we need to spend more time thinking about heaven than earth. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, is the way Psalm 84 begins. I was going to actually read the psalm and talk about it a bit, but I noticed on the schedule that Pastor Jonathan is, this is, that's his favorite psalm. So sorry, Jonathan, I'm going to leave it to you. Psalm 84, I can hardly wait for that. But just to touch on it, to say that, you know, we sang about it this morning, teach my heart 
teach my heart to live for heaven. Pastor Greg Laurie, um, I haven't listened to him for a while on radio. I'm assuming he's still teaching on radio, Greg Laurie. Um, he's an evangelist, pastor, teacher, author. His, his young adult son, um, who actually was on staff with him at the same church, on, on his way to a staff meeting at church, uh, got into a car accident a number of years ago and died. And that moment for Greg Laurie changed his perspective, changed his life. And he said he spent from that moment on almost all of his time thinking about heaven. The things of this earth just didn't really matter a whole lot anymore. They, they did in terms of preparation for heaven, but he kept his eyes there. And in fact, for a few years, he, he did most of his study uh, on heaven from the word of God, his personal study, and out of that he wrote a book. God is our dwelling place. Secondly, God is our creator. We must never forget that he is our creator. I think our indigenous brothers and sisters, uh, peoples have it right when they acknowledge God as creator. That's the way they begin, creator. Verse 2, before the heavens were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world. It begins with this is, our, this, is, this is God. He's our dwelling place. He's our creator. Even And so we need to get our heads up to look at other, God's creation. We need to look at those mountains that he formed after he formed the earth and everything in it. We need to look at those trees and those rivers and, and all of it pointing to this great God who is our dwelling place, who is so above us. Third, God is, our, God is eternal. I'm just skimming these, friends, like this could be like a whole series here, but we're just going real fast. God is eternal. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or, you had, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are, are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. A thousand years for, for God is like a little watch in the night. It's, it's like yesterday, it's gone. This is the God that Moses wants us to see. Number four, we're going to come back to these in light of who we are. God is not only eternal, but he is sovereign and he is almighty over his creation, over us. Verse three, you return man to dust. Who else can do that? God does it. He determines it. And he says, return, O children of man. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and, and is renewed. And then comes that 36 or 38 degree heat and in the evening it fades and it withers. And this is what God does. And this is our lives. In light of the sovereignty, the eternality of, and the, the majesty of God to whom time means nothing. God does what he wants with creation because it's his he determines the outcome. God spoke and all that we see around us came into existence and with that same word, it ceases that fast. Think about the power behind that kind of capability. We sang about it this morning, about the risen Christ, Jesus. There is none more powerful. 
Fifth, God is holy and God is just. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. The holiness of God in whom there is no sin and in whose presence there can be no sin. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We, are, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Okay. Put that in one back pocket, and now we're going to go to the other side, and we're going to look at who are we. <laughs> this helps us gain perspective, friends. Who are we? Number one. Oh, I want to say this. <laughs> Another little illustration. I was watching um, Shark Tank one time. I don't know. Do you guys like Shark Tank and Dragon's Den and all that kind of stuff? Okay. I, I love those shows. So one time a guy brought this product on. It was a mirror, and his goal was to have the sharks invest in this mirror that would be installed in fitting rooms all over the world. And what this mirror would do is make you look taller and slimmer than what you actually were. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Deceiving. Because that's what people want. That's how they want to view themselves, is a little bit taller and a little bit thinner than what they really are. But the sharks just outright rejected it and said, we cannot do that because it would be putting false hope. It's deceiving people. When they walk into a fitting room, as bad as it is, they need a true picture. (laughs) I'm speaking personally here, folks. As bad as it is, they need a true picture of what they're dealing with. And this is what God does for us in Psalm 90. He puts a proper mirror in the fitting room. And the first thing he says is, Hey, you're not the creator. You're the created. We are the dwellers. We're not the dwelling. We are formed by God's hands. And as clay, we have no right to tell the potter what to do. Jeremiah 18 and Isaiah 64 talk about God forming us, literally from the dust of the earth. He he puts us on his wheel and he molds us and he shapes us into what he wants us to look like, the personalities we have, the gifts and the talents he wants us to have, the future he's envisioned for us, and it's all his. We can resist that. might turn out to be not quite as good as it should be if he has to kind of like mold something that's not very pliable. But God wants to shape us, and we are the created. Secondly, this uh, psalm tells us is that we are mortal. We are not eternal. Um, Our lives come to an end. Dust. Grass that is green in the morning and faded and withered by evening. Just like that, swept away like a dream, like a flood. All of the imagery this psalm uses. Okay, let's keep going. Third, because we're mortal, we're weak. We're not all powerful like God. God is sovereign and almighty, but we're weak in our humanity and mortality. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. 
yet their span is but toil and trouble, and they are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? I did a funeral a couple years ago for a really, really wonderful man. His name is Hans Lowen, lived in Yarrow. He passed away at the age of 91. Hans and Alfreda are those uh, kind of people, and uh, we have many of them here at Central as well, but the kind of people that are so encouraging. And one of the greatest compliments I was ever paid in ministry was uh, by Alfreda. Um, I was making my way to the front one Sunday morning just before I was to preach, and she grabbed my hands because I was holding my Bible, and she said, do you know what I appreciate about you, old German people? And I said, no, Alfreda, what? She goes, I appreciate the fact that you bring the word of God and you hold the Bible in the pulpit. That's what she would remember me by, and I was so honored by that, and I've always remembered, like, teach the word of God. It's important to people. And... And so when, when her dear husband passed away at 91, Elfrida phoned me. I was no longer at that church. It was just a few years ago. But would you preach at Hans's funeral? And stories were told about him, and I knew some of them to be true myself. This guy, Hans, was a character. I mean, he was an encourager just like his wife, but he was a real... Uh, I don't know what the right word is to use, so maybe I'll just leave it out of the sermon. But he was, he was a real character. Let's just put it that way. The very first time I met him, he grabbed my hand with such gusto and force that I thought my bones would break. And then, and then, he, and then he pulled me off balance. And I'm like, what is going on here? And I just about hit the floor. And then, and then as he's pulling me off balance, and he was about 80 years old at this time, and he was a lot shorter than me. Like, he was a short guy. He pulled me off balance, I'm falling forward, and then he goes, huh! I'm like, what? This is literally, I'm a new pastor at this church, and he just, and he just about did me in, and I'm like, what? What am I, what am I in store for here? And he says, back in the army, he was conscripted in an army that he did not want to serve in, World War II. So the best day of his life was when he was captured as a prisoner of war and sent to a, a, a camp, prisoner, a POW camp. In, it was in southern Europe. I just can't remember the country right now, but he said it was the first time in about four years they actually had food, like real food to eat. He was so thankful. Anyway, back to the story. He, uh, he said, back in the army, we learned how to kill a man. Can I... <laughs> Can I say that in a Mennonite church? You know, this is, we're in pacifist territory here, right? With our hands. <laughs> Literally, and people called him Popeye because his arms were like big. Every day of his life, he used to chop wood for that day. He'd get up early, go into the woodshed and get out the axe and start chopping wood. And that was the wood for the day. And literally a, a day, maybe two before he died, he was chopping wood. All of a sudden, congestive heart failure. He went into the hospital by ambulance and he did not survive. He died within hours. Chopping wood to being with the Lord, just like that. And that's our lives. We're weak. 
we're mortal. And Paul reminds us in, in 1 Corinthians that, you know, hey guys, like the foolishness of God, if there is such a thing, is wiser than man's wisdom. The weakness of God, if there is such a thing, is stronger than any strength that any man has. Number four, not only are we mortal and weak and the, the uh, created person, but within that, the psalm, the psalm tells us very clearly that we are sinful. We are unholy, the very opposite of the holiness of God. Verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, our sin, our secret sins in the light of your presence for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Now, if you read the rest of Scripture, but particularly Romans, it makes it abundantly clear that all people are sinful from birth, in which there is no good. Apart from Christ in us, there is no good that exists. Our hearts are wicked. We are objects of God's wrath. That's what this psalm tells us. All the way back in Psalm 90. You don't have to even go to Romans to figure that one out. And we are destined to die in the transgression of God's law. We just went through the Ten Commandments. Apart from Christ who fulfilled the law, we're destined to die under the law, under the wrath of God. And Jesus, in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation, he said, you know, you, you think, you say, I'm rich, I have, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that, in fact, you are wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, blind, and naked. That's who we are in light of a holy God. So, with that dismal picture, how do we respond? God, us, what's the response? Five things real quick. Number one, verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. It's the first thing we ought to do is number our days. Freedom session. I, I like it. I direct it in Agassiz. I've been part of it for quite a few years. The, the thing I love about freedom session, I, I mean, I love every part of it. It gets you to deal with your stuff. So people sin against you. How do you deal with that? And people are kept in bondage by that, and they experience often no freedom because they're harboring hurt, anger, bitterness. It teaches you how to forgive, how to truly deal with those things. But we also sin against other people, and we hurt them. And we can live in bondage and no freedom because of that. So it teaches you how to be forgiven how to make amends with people properly. And so you make inventories, and you inventory your entire life. It's a lot of work, but it's so freeing because you, you get it in the open, you deal with it, you, you literally inventory it, you share it with one person, your sponsor, then you go deal with that stuff in your life. Before that, you inventory all of your strengths because it does get heavy, so it takes you from here all the way down. The very last thing that you inventory is called your closet. Your closet is that last 5 to 10% of your life that you swear you will take to the grave. And nobody will ever know that. You've got to share it with one person, at least one, and seek the forgiveness of God and be healed from those things. Part of Freedom Session as well is an exercise in the authentic living part of it 
which is the last eight weeks or so, that teaches you literally how to number your days. Now, I don't know what the average life expectancy is in Canada, but I'm guessing it's around the 80 mark. Very scriptural. <laughs> and so, uh, Ken, Pastor Ken, uh, who's now pastor, discipleship pastor at Village Church in Surrey, but he wrote Freedom Session. He, he literally says, okay, take, take your average life expectancy, subtract your current age, and this is what you have left. Now, and he literally takes you through the formula so that you can figure out how many Saturdays, weekends you have left in your life, potentially, because none of us know how long we're going to live, really. It's sobering. And the question is, what are you going to do with those Saturdays? Are they going to be spent for yourself? I got to get some rest. I got to go to the lake. I want to go on a trip. I want to, I want to, I want to. Or are they going to be spent for the purpose of the kingdom of God and investing in, in other people? And, and we're going to get there yet in our response. So we need, to, we need to number our days. We need God to teach us how to do that so that we can get a heart of wisdom. And if you go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 18, I'm just going to give you the reference. You can read it later. It's a bit of a longer passage, but it talks about the fact that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And there's coming an end, not just to our lives, but to this entire earth. And then the question that Peter poses is, so then, what kind of lives are you going to live? And he said, since everything is going to be dissolved, what sort of people you ought to be in lives of holiness and godliness as you wait for that day so that others can come to know him. Because without Christ, people perish under the wrath of God. Um, in fact, that's what Hebrews says. It's uh, verse 9. It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look to him shall appear the second time without sin and unto salvation. We need to look to Christ so that there's hope, and that's gaining the heart of wisdom is to look to Christ. Arlene Dickinson, who is a businesswoman, and she's also one of the dragons on that show, a couple of years ago she, she uh, said this, at 60 years old, I have an announcement to make. Here it is. Life ends. <laughs> I know, I know, it's hard to believe this fact, especially for those of you reading this post who are under 30. But this revelation has come to me in the middle of the night, and it is indeed true. Actually, it came to me over countless days and nights as I have gone about living my life and realizing the blessing of time. Why? Because time gives you perspective, and it gives you a sense of urgency. Now, her urgency is in business, but... What's our business? A desire to ensure that you make the most of your days. Live your life fully. Don't wait until you're 60 to realize that the days and nights you've been given are in fact your most precious commodity. Use them wisely. Don't waste even a moment. Live out loud. Here's where I disagree. We'll come back to it. She said, live for yourself. Ignore that. <laughs> live your dreams. Secondly, well, how do we respond? Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. We literally are supposed to 
expedite the return of God by asking for it and in telling others we actually speed his coming. And in the meantime, have pity. R.C. Sproul, a great theologian, um, wrote in The Holiness of God, he said, when we understand the character of God, when we grasp something of his holiness, then we begin to understand the radical character of our sin and hopelessness. Helpless sinners can survive only by grace. Our strength is futile in itself. We are spiritually impotent without the assistance of a merciful God. Have pity on your servants. We need the mercy of God. Sproul goes on to say, we may dislike giving our attention to God's wrath and justice, but until we incline ourselves to these aspects of God's nature, we will never appreciate what has been wrought for us by grace. Even Jonathan Edwards' sermon on sinners in the hands of an angry God was not designed to stress the flames of hell. The resounding accent falls not on the fiery pit, but on the hands of God who holds us and rescues us from it. The hands of God are gracious hands. They alone have the power to rescue us from certain destruction. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Number three. Third response, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us for as many years as we have seen evil. Yes, this world is full of affliction and evil and toil and suffering. But for as many days there are of those, God is saying we got to rejoice. <laughs> we have to be glad. We have to be satisfied with the steadfast love of God. The love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure. That's what we need to focus on. That's how we need to respond, to be satisfied. And in that, we will rejoice and be glad. A few scriptures for you. For God so loved the world, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. He loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Romans 5, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Jesus, how much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved? By his life. Isn't that good news? Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It's ought to be our song when we wake up. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And Psalm 46 says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. And that's why we need to have our eyes on heaven. Spurgeon said this, My hope lives not because I am a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I am holy, but that he is, but that in being unholy, he is my righteousness. 
My faith rests not upon what I am or shall be or feel or know, but in what Christ is and what he has done and in what he is doing for me now. Hallelujah, said Spurgeon. (laughs) We ought to say that every day. Hallelujah for what Christ did for us. We have hope. Number four, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. If there is, listen, if there's any one thing um, that we need to respond to, it's that the work of God and his power would be known to the next generation. This is my prayer for my kids. Is it our prayer for our kids and for those who are coming after us that they would see the glorious power and the work of God in their lives? And so opposite to Arlene Dickinson, because time is short and it's our most precious commodity, we need to live for others so that they can know him. Number five. And this is where we're going to end. Let the favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Would you join me today in praying for the favor of God upon us and that he might establish the work of our hands, not based on um, our work alone, but based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. I am astounded by the favor of God upon me personally, from what I've been through in my past to where I am today. I'm astounded by the favor of God and, and I there's no, no greater desire I have than that his work would be established through me. And I'm astounded by the favor of God upon Central. I came on staff here this year. Will be my, I completed five years on staff at Central. And he has poured out our fa- his favor upon us. But that work is far from being established. Agassiz was our first campus. Actually, our second. This is... First campus, main campus, Agassiz, second. Now we're at five. But the favor of God is being poured out upon us, but it's far from being established. Would you pray that God would establish it for his glory? Unless the Lord builds the house, Psalm 127 says, those who build it labor in vain. We need the Lord to build the house. Final quote from Spurgeon again, that we need to realize that we truly need to rely on the Lord to build the house, not anything that we're doing. Yes, he wants us to work, but it is not based on our merit. It's based on the merit of Christ. Spurgeon said, and remember too that God will never establish our works if they are intended to rival the works of his son. Some people work very hard in trying to make a righteousness of their own, but if they could achieve their purpose they would then be independent of a savior. Their attempted obedience to the law of God is intended to be a substitute for the perfect righteousness of Christ. And their tears and repentances are intended to be a substitute for the atoning sacrifice of Christ. But do you suppose that God will ever take the side of those who who desire to rival his son and make the work of his son needless? That can never be. Self-righteousness is the direst of insults to the Son of God. If I conceive myself to be righteous and 
meritorious in God's sight, I do as far as lies in me cast a reflection upon the wisdom of God, for I tell him that although he provided a savior, one was not needed, at any rate not for me. I also insult the blood of Jesus, for I tell him that it was shed unnecessarily, at least as far as I'm concerned, for I have no sin needing to be washed away. I insult the Holy Spirit too, for I tell him that I do not need new birth, for I am already as good as I need to be. Self-righteousness insults the triune Jehovah, and therefore we cannot ask God to establish it. If we are sensible, we should pray God to pull it down, every stick and stone of it. And rest assured, sinners, <laughs> like I didn't pull any punches, did he? And rest assured, sinners, that if God ever does save you, he will do that as one of the very first things for every stone that our fancied nobility has ever put upon its fellow with a view to building a refuge for ourselves, God will take it down. Not one stone shall be left upon another if God is ever to save us. One of the most deplorable things that could ever happen to a man or a woman would be for them to be allowed to dwell comfortably in a refuge of lies until the storm of divine judgment should sweep both themselves and the refuge away forever. Dear hearer, may I ask you whether your work is a self-righteous one, whether you are trying to save yourself? If so, this prayer of Moses cannot properly be used by you Neither can God hear it with acceptance. No wicked works or self-righteous works may we ask God to establish. Let's pray, and then let's respond. Oh God, I am so thankful that you directed Moses, the man of God, to pray this prayer and to write it down for us so that we may gain the proper perspective on our lives in light of who you are. So God, we acknowledge again this morning that you are our dwelling place, you are our creator, you are eternal, you are sovereign and almighty, you are holy and just. And that we are the created, mortal, sinful, weak beings who are in desperate need of your mercy and your grace. And so God, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Have pity on us. And we look forward to your return. Lord, would you satisfy us with your love? May you give us hearts that rejoice and be glad. And Lord, would your work be shown, please, to our servants and our children. And let your favor be upon us and establish the work of our hands in the finished work of Christ. For we pray it in his name. Amen.